Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania was founded in 1681 by William Penn. In more than 330 years since, the Commonwealth has accumulated millions of documents, pictures, and artifacts. So much so that the State Archives has outgrown its current location next to the State Museum in Harrisburg. Now plans are on the drawing board to build a new $24 million facility to house the collection. Joining us to talk about it this morning is David Carmichael, the State Archivist and Director of the Pennsylvania State Archives. Mr. Carmichael, welcome back to the program. Thank you. If you have a question or comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I may have provided the answer in my introduction about why a new building is in the offing, why you need one. So, But I'll put it out there anyway. Sure. Kind of describe uh, how you've run out of space or why the current facility doesn't work anymore. Well, certainly, as you mentioned, we, we are getting tight on space. We now have some 250 million documents in the 20-story tower downtown. And so uh, we're not quite out of space, but we're getting very, very close and need to plan for the future. And that building, of course, is more than 50 years old now. And I always say it was, it's, it was state-of-the-art when the IBM Selectric was state-of-the-art. And our technology has moved on, uh, and we need a facility that really meets the needs of our collection. You know, those people who have you know, been to Harrisburg and have been to the State Archives, been to the State Museum. I think the, the visits, if they're coming from across the state, usually one in the, and, you know, include both. Sure. Look at that building, say 20 stories. How could they ever run out of space? <laughs> it's it's interesting because the State Archives only collects the records that have to be kept permanently. And that's really probably less than 5% of all the records the state creates. But over 335 years, uh, you can fill up a building that size. You know, the technology in 1966, when that building opened, I'm sure it was state-of-the-art at that time. Sure. The new building, and we'll talk specifically about the kind of technology that you'll use, but how is it different? We're, we're moving much more to preserving digital records, even than paper records, because obviously the, the state government creates more and more of its records electronically. And so we have to have the technology in place to be able to preserve a digital record for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is not an easy task, as you can imagine. But the digital part would almost seem easier than keeping paper records or even things that are on, on different materials be well, because of the environment uh, in, inside the building, the age of the documents, all those things. I always say, if you give me a piece of paper, I could theoretically put it on, on the shelf and come back in 100 years and still read it. Uh, and, and yes, we need a proper environment for that. But when you give me a digital record to preserve, uh, think about putting it on the shelf and coming back in 100 years. The hardware has changed incredibly. The software to read it has changed. And so uh, we have many different formats of records that we are going to have to preserve for hundreds of years. And that is a great, great challenge. And just think about it. You you gave the example of the IBM. Uh, I, I was reading an article last week that uh, the words floppy disk were mentioned. I was like, oh, man, that's been a while. I think I still have some, but I don't know whether I could use them or not. Uh, but describe the conditions inside the building right now that, that you're using. The, the building uh, is still a good building, but after 50 years, it... Uh, is showing its age, as we all do after 50 years, I guess. Uh, so we do have problems sometimes with water leaks and, and such. And fortunately, we've not had damaged records. Uh, we, we are able to protect them carefully. But the, uh, the 
heating and ventilation systems are very outdated and require a lot of maintenance, and they just don't keep the environment anymore uh, to the standards that we would expect in an archives. And so in our new building, we certainly will be aiming for very, very state-of-the-art uh, environments. What kind of heat do you have? We have gas, heat, okay. and uh, boilers and, and such, so it's a... It's it, it it's a large building to maintain an environment. Well, yeah, in. twenty different, yeah, twenty sure. stories. I, I asked that question obviously because I'm thinking about the the, the cost, the new building. What kind of uh, heat and uh, ventilation will you have there? Well, since we're not in design yet, so that we've oh, you're not. We, we've okay. done some schematic design, but we've not done the detailed design yet. So that will all be worked out. But you know, one of the things that will happen in the new building is it will be. Uh, insulated with state-of-the-art insulation and things like that, which, again, in the 60s, when our current building was constructed, it, too, was insulated with state-of-the-art materials, but those have since been superseded by much more efficient materials, and so we hope to gain a lot of efficiencies in the new building. You know, I'm asking you a question that probably we could ask anyone who has plans down the road to construct a new facility, but you use taxpayer money, so I'll ask this question okay. this way. I mean, is that something that when the building is being designed that is taken into consideration is the cost down the road, the efficiency down the road for just something like heat and ventilation? Absolutely. Um, I, I think perhaps the last time I was here, we talked about when I was the state archivist in Georgia, I built a new state archives there. And, and I loved the building, but the one thing I regretted was that we didn't spend more time thinking about maintenance costs and, and the difficulty of maintaining even light fixtures and such. And so um, since day one, when we've talked about this building, uh, we've been hammering the fact that we need to think about long-term costs and make certain we are as, as cost-effective as possible. Uh, I'm a taxpayer, too, and so I'm always trying to save my own money, and uh, we really want to put a lot of thought into that. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned, and I wanted to talk about this, that uh, when you appeared on the program the first time was right after you came to Pennsylvania yes. from Georgia about three years ago. Um, what lessons, and you not only did you build a new facility in Georgia, but you also had that move. And we're going to talk about that move of, of the documents and uh, all the materials inside, but what lessons did you learn from building that new facility and making that move? Sure. Um, it was quite an experience, and, and I learned from scratch at that point. Um, one of the things I just mentioned was keeping the maintenance costs in mind. You can have a gorgeous building, but if it's very difficult even to get up and change a light bulb, uh, it becomes an expense that you weren't anticipating, perhaps. Uh, archives buildings are very expensive to maintain because of those environments that we have to maintain. And so what we learned in that project was excellent insulation, uh, get the best roof that you can possibly afford, because that's where a lot of your problems will begin if, if you don't pay attention to that. Uh, and, and certainly there were a lot of lessons learned in preparing the collection to move, as you, as you mentioned. It's hard to move 250 million pieces of paper and, and videotapes and DVDs and electronic records. So uh, we're already in the uh, preparation stages for that move, which we think won't take place for another three years. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about that move sure. because I, I just can't even wrap my head around this. Uh, you know, I hate moving my <laughs> furniture, let alone I do too. 250 million <laughs> documents. I mean, how do you go about that? Who actually does it? So the first step is to make sure that we have a handle on what we have. And uh, the, the collection really has been inventoried over the years, but there has not been a thorough, comprehensive inventory since the 60s. 
And so we're going through and we're verifying what we have in every container. And over the years, uh, in certain cases, some things have just been set on the shelves. Uh, perhaps they were too big for a container, for instance. And now we know if we're going to move that, it has to be in a container. So we're putting things in containers, making sure that every container is barcoded and that it is tied back to the contents of that container. And when we move, there will be barcoding on the shelves so that we will know where everything ends up. And, and we, will, we will engage a moving company that hopefully has experience in this sort of thing. But it's going to depend an awful lot on my staff to just watch what's happening and make certain that we certainly don't want to lose anything along the way. And in Georgia, we didn't lose anything. We found a few things that we didn't know we had. Uh, so I don't expect to lose anything. But uh, it, it just takes a lot of careful planning. And as I say, it's a three-year project we have underway right now where we are going through and making certain we have control of every single thing in that tower. You said that uh, it has only been, it almost sounds kind of haphazard how things have been inventory. How have they been inventoried up until now? Well, of course, the, the computer inventories are relatively recent. And so prior to that time, everything was written on pieces of paper and in notebooks and card files and such. And um, over the past few years, there's been a bigger transition to putting these in databases and electronic finding aid systems. Uh, and, and when I arrived, that process had begun, but it was not complete. And so we've been pushing to complete all of that, uh, transition all of our paper finding aids into electronic form, and then make certain that those are tied to specific containers that have been barcoded so that we can track them every step of the way. Are there documents, and, and, and I've been using the word document, but are there artifacts as well? We do not collect artifacts. Okay. Two-dimensional only. Okay, so where, do the, where are the artifacts? The State Museum collects the artifacts. Okay, so they have, but those that are not on display, right. where are they? They are in storage in the State Museum. Okay. Howard uh, Pullman is here as communications director. I'm not going to ask you to go on the air on the hour, but where, I mean, you don't have to give a location, but there's a warehouse where all that occurs? Um, there are places that are stored on the fourth floor in the State Museum. Oh, there's sort of okay. the Keystone Building. There's stored at Fort Indian Town Gap. They're stored um, throughout the Commonwealth. Actually, we have collections at our individual field sites. Oh, okay. So we, we just brought Howard Pullman in from, from He's like sitting on the side here. <laughs> but I'm wondering, uh, the documents that you have, are they prioritized by any chance? Meaning that there are some, like... Okay, the charter, I would assume, is pretty important. Um, Pennsylvania Charter from 1681. Uh, but are they prioritized that, now, you know, we don't want to lose anything, but to make sure, okay, this is something that is so important, this must be handled. You know, everyone has to pay attention to this. <laughs> so we do have one special area in the archives, a very high security vault where we maintain the charter from 1681, uh, the first state constitution, the first frame of government, the provincial records, uh, the colonial records. Uh, so those, obviously, we pay an awful lot of attention to. But ultimately, every document there can have some legal significance to someone or historical significance to someone. And so we treat them all as being extremely important, and, and we don't want to lose any of them. Uh, we, we may have special escort for the records that are in the vault, but uh, we, we intend not to lose anything. 
Will you be carrying a sidearm? <laughs> I'm not at liberty to say. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, we don't want to provide uh, too much uh, security information, that's for sure. Now, coming from Georgia, and I remember when you, you first started, and I could tell that you were enthusiastic, excited about uh, starting here in Pennsylvania, because, quite frankly, we have a better history here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but uh, uh, over the three years that you've been here, and obviously... You're a historian, and history is a big part of your life. Are there documents that when you've gone through, you say, wow, or some type of reaction like that? I, I love the documents that we have, and I love the history of Pennsylvania, certainly. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I do. Uh, and I was excited then, and I'm still excited uh, a great deal today because we do have wonderful collections. And, and it's so hard to pinpoint a specific item or, or you know set of documents. I, I will say one day I, uh, I wrote to a friend of mine, and I said, I wandered down the hall today and read through the diary of the uh, the commandant of the federal prison where the Lincoln conspirators were held and and tried and executed. And I just was leafing through his diary. Of course, that was Governor Hartrant, who uh, was the commandant then, so we have his records. And, and I said, there aren't many people who have a job that allows them to do something that exciting uh, at any time. Now, I don't get to do that every day because I have a lot of things I have to worry about. Well, see, I'd, I'd want to do that every day. But... <laughs> Okay, and how did that get to Pennsylvania? I mean, because obviously uh, those conspirators were tried in, in, Washington. in Washington, yeah, and, and they were hanged, right. executed in, in Washington as well. That's right. Governor Hartrapt was the commandant of the federal prison there, and he kept the records of, the, of their trial. He had his own diary of who visited them and, and what, what they were fed and that sort of thing, and, and of the execution, because he oversaw that. And then he kept those records with him, as was very common at that time, and they eventually came to the state archives. Uh, we actually have a, a formal agreement with the National Archives that we retain those records, even though technically they are federal records. So, it, it, But it's an example of just some of the most interesting things that we have here that you won't find anyplace else. What you learn from the diary? I learned uh, some of it was very mundane, just keeping well, you know, a diary, yeah. sure, but yeah. keeping you know track hour by hour about who came to visit and things like that. But um, it was I got the sense that the the governor was a very humane man, and he wanted to treat them very humanely, despite what they had done, and let justice you know uh, follow its course. And so there's not a lot of judgment in there that I could see. It was it was an interesting story. Of course, they were executed three weeks after the assassination. That's so right. That's right. things That's happened right. a little That's quicker right. back then. That's right. <laughs> You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing a new home for the state archives. Our guest is David Carmichael, state archivist and director of the Pennsylvania State Archives. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to WITF.org or smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Now, we had a caller who was driving on I-81, and we're assuming he pulled over when he did this, but they wanted to know, um, he, you kind of answered this question, if all the materials from the old building will be moved out, wanted to know what happens to the old building. Sure. The, um, there, will, there will doubtless be a feasibility study uh, to dis discuss what to do with that building. It is part of the museum and archives complex that is on the National Register, very historic building, 
And um, the museum, as you can imagine, has many, many objects. And one of the, the questions is whether the storage could be used for museum objects uh, that need less temperature and humidity controls in many cases. Uh, so there'll be a thorough study about what to do with that building, and I suspect it will continue to, to serve the Historical Museum Commission in some way. So what you're saying, the plans have not uh, been solidified Not yet. at this point. Yeah. No. I mean, there may be a time where we're knocking that building down, and now I see heads shaking, no. No, it's not going to happen. We hope not. Okay, all right. Well, it's on. The, when you say it's on the registry, how is it on the registry? It's a fifty-year-old building. It is. As long as it's fifty years old, it can be nominated for its historic significance, and it is a that whole complex is historically significant. I, I'm not the state historic preservation officer, so I can't give you all the details, but uh, it is architecturally significant. And it is historically significant. Yeah, it was controversial at the time it was. When in, in 1966 when it was put up. Uh, I was too young to remember that. So <laughs> um, let's talk about the new facility. Describe it. Well, it hasn't been designed yet, but I have already said um, if, you, if you know our current building, it is a little intimidating, shall we say. Uh, it looks as if it has absolutely no windows, and people can be put off by that. And so I've already told the architects, I, I want a building that's the exact opposite of that. I want something that looks very welcoming to people. Obviously, we need areas without windows to store the records and protect them. The sunlight's not a good thing. Not a good thing. Not for the records, but it is for our patrons. Mm -hmm. And so we want a building that people feel very welcome to approach and come in, and we hope to have many community programs there and, and exhibits, we hope. Uh, we'd like to have a good exhibit area and uh, a very nice search, or search room, research room, where people can come in. One of my goals is to have uh, Wi-Fi throughout the building so that people can bring their own devices and come in and access our finding aids and such uh, without even needing to use a, a computer that's wired. So we're thinking technology as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, maybe one of the basic questions we should ask is, how do Pennsylvanians use the archives? Uh -huh. They use them in droves. Uh, many of our users, as you know, uh, come to us to research family history. Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania has a long, long history, so many families uh, have origins here, and so people come from all over the country and even the world to use our records for that purpose. And of course, as you know, also, we have a good partnership with Ancestry.com. Mm -hmm. uh, we have put eight and a half million records online with Ancestry. We have now about 13 and a half million records online. And a lot of that's free. I mean, you're offer free. Free. You're free. It is free. Right. Uh, you can come through our website, uh, pastatearchives.com, and you can access the Pennsylvania records at Ancestry for free. So family history is, is certainly one way. But uh, people use, somebody told me the other day that she used the records in the archives to trace uh, mineral rights and oil rights back to very, very early land records. And of course, uh, just about every piece of property in the state could trace its origin back to a record in the state archives. And so people use those records to trace land many times. Uh, the state agencies use these records all the time to go back and see, you know, what was the report we did 20 years ago on this? Uh, the avian flu occurred, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. What was our study at that time? And the archives would have those sorts of records. And so they come and, and look for that. Uh, so there are a lot of legal uses for them. And, and family history, of course, is the big one. How much is online? Like you just talked about the partnership with Ancestry.com. But uh, for those people who 
may just want to get started sure. or just have a quick question. What's online? Sure, we have we have thirteen and a half million records online, and we began with genealogical records because mm-hmm. those are things that that people use a great deal. So we have death records and birth records and marriage records, um, and a lot of military records. Uh, one of the ways our records are used every week, many times a week is to prove military service Mm -hmm. uh, because that leads to benefits and such. And and as you know, the Federal Record Center burned down in the 1970s, and a lot of those records were lost. And so every day we get a call uh, and and provide proof of service for a a veteran. But we have military records that go back uh, to the very founding of the Commonwealth. And so people will find those online as well. What's the oldest document you have? Uh, we actually have a document from 1664 that is an agreement between the English and the Dutch. Uh, but the 1681 charter is what we consider to be document one. You know, uh, Brent Glass, who is very yes. well known here in Pennsylvania, is yes. going to be a guest on the program. He's written a new book about the, the 50 uh, most fascinating places or places you want to visit uh, in the United States. One of the places that he has is 50 is Newcastle, Delaware. And the reason I bring that up is because just what you talked about, there was, I don't know, some disagreement about Pennsylvania, (laughs) New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, uh, our borders. And that's why they came up with the Mason-Dixon line. But that, and actually, if you go to um, Ocean City, Maryland, right there at the the border with Delaware, Pennsylvania's border used to be there. So I'm just spitting these things out there. But uh, those are the kind of things that when you you mentioned that, that's the first thing I thought of was that, you know, we we take these things for granted nowadays. But over 300 years ago. We didn't have the technology, and it's, it's nice to be able to look at those records and find out how this all came about. That's right. And and the borders of Pennsylvania have been debated with many states over many years, and, and many of those settlements and records are in the state archives because one of our tasks is to protect the borders, in that sense, the, the property rights of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Now, this building is estimated $24 million. Yes. Now, I have to admit, now, they're probably going to say, Scott, you are so full of it. But when I heard $24 million, I thought, okay, that's not a lot of money to build a new building today. Um, Now, I'm not like patting you on the back saying, hey, you did well with $24 million, but that doesn't sound like a whole lot compared to some other facilities. We'll wait and see if we do well with $24 million. Uh, See if you come under budget or something like that. That's right. I I think in our looking at it, uh, we believe that it's going to be sufficient. And uh, if, if we find additional money out there, we'll certainly... Not be, uh, not refuse it, but it's it should be enough to build the kind of building that we need to build. Now, where is that money coming from? Is that the state's general fund or what? It's the uh, bond issues of the state. Okay, so you will be borrowing against it. Yes. Okay. Um, when you say you should find some other money, I mean, are are you talking about? Uh private contributions? We, or? we certainly will be looking to see areas that we could use private contributions. I think, for instance, the exhibit areas would be a good place to try to raise some private money uh, and have good public spaces. Mm-hmm. Now, w- w- you say this is a three-year process, so I, I, you know, it, it sounds so far away, 2020. <laughs> but uh, you know, what can we anticipate here in the near future, and, and what's the timeline? Sure. In, in a couple of months, we will begin the, the design again. We, we had begun some schematic design. Uh, once the land acquisitions are completed, we will begin our design again. That's going to take a year to really design the building and, and 
make sure it's exactly what we want. And then a two-year construction period, we think. Uh, so that's why we're looking at three years. And it seems like a long time to you. It doesn't seem like a long time to me. Well, I mean, just the year <laughs> itself. Uh, it sounds so right. futuristic that's with right. uh, 2020. Um, we're, by the way, we're, we're looking at what, uh, where, where is it located? We're, it's going to be on North 6th Street in Harrisburg, between Harris and Hamilton. Right. Uh, so it's just a few blocks away. It and is. New federal courthouse uh, built in that area a, a, as well. Now, you mentioned that uh, you know, some of the features of the new facility, but it, public library is one. Also understand that the city of Harrisburg is excited about this because right. there's something for the city as well. That's right. We have agreed to take the Harrisburg City Archives into the state archives and take their collection. And and there's, it's a really great marriage of collections. Uh, the mayor and I were talking the other day that the City Beautiful movement that was so important in Harrisburg. And historic. Uh, historic. Uh, the, their records have a lot to do with that uh, movement. And, of course, in the state archives, we have many, many records around that movement. And so it's those sorts of things that I think we're going to find as we put that collection in with ours. Uh, it will be a distinct collection within the state archives, but I think there's going to be a lot of synergy between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, you, you, and it's no surprise that uh, genealogy is uh, what most people are interested in. But if they could do this right now, but once the new facility is constructed, someone just wants to walk in and say, hmm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look up my family history sure. today. How would they do that? They can walk in and say, I want to look up my family history oh, there's today. There's someone there who can, <laughs> who can help them do that. There's someone there who can help them. Uh, my staff are terrific at this and terrific at a lot of things. Uh, but they know genealogy, and they are always happy to help somebody get started. Mm-hmm. And a question here from uh, a listener. Megan wants to know, what are the plans to digitize the materials, purchase digitiza- digitalization uh, hardware, or outsource to digitization vendors? Uh, when will this occur? Sure. We've, we've started that certainly with our um, partnership with Ancestry, where we've done millions of records. Uh, and we are bl- planning this building to have a, a good-sized scanning area. And we would like to have staff do scanning. We would like to do internships with people doing scanning. In fact, we have done those already in the summer where we have students we train them to do the scanning and, and processing of the records. Uh, we, have, we do have 250 million records there. So even though we have 13.5 million online, we've, we've got a ways to go before we get them all out there. The, the other thing, though, is that we are receiving more and more records from state agencies already in digital form. And so there won't be any scanning to do for those records. And so uh, we have plans underway for digital archives uh, that is you know, software and hardware-based. And those we should be able to make available very rapidly online. Mm. Well, it sounds like a great project, and uh, I know that uh, there are a lot of Pennsylvanians who will be looking forward to it. But that doesn't mean that in the next three years they can't stop at the current facility Absolutely. and uh, take advantage as well. David Carmichael is a state archivist and director of the Pennsylvania State Archives. Thank you very much for being with us Thank today. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. There was a time when the fish species shad swam from from the Chesapeake Bay, actually from the Atlantic Ocean into the Chesapeake Bay and up the Susquehanna River to spawn. Shad was a source of food for millions of people. 
But then just before the 1850s, the first of several dams were built across the river, and that kept the shad from migrating. The subsequent dams did as well. The Conowingo Dam just south of Pennsylvania and Maryland was perhaps the biggest barrier. Over the years, fish lifts and trucking shad upstream was used with mixed success. Now there's a new agreement to restore shad to the Susquehanna River. Joining us on the program today is John Arway, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission, and Josh Trinajeski, who is a biologist with the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission, who is in charge of shad restoration efforts. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Great to be back. Josh, are you there? I am here. Okay, Thank good. You. Good morning. Uh-huh. And if you have a question or a comment, we're going to be talking about some other things as well, but uh, start off talking about the shad restoration. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right. Uh, I'll start with you, uh, John Arway, the executive director. Exelon Generation, the owners of the Conowingo Dam, which I said is just south of uh, the Pennsylvania border in northern Maryland. And the federal government actually reached this agreement to restore shad to the Susquehanna River. Why is this important, significant? Well, um, it's it's important to us because back in 1866, the Fish and Boat Com- Fish Commission at the time was created to restore American shad to the Susquehanna River. That was our original purpose, and we've been working on it ever since, Scott. And the story that just broke the other day about the negotiations about uh, the new agreement at Conowingo uh, really applied to the other dams upstream of Conowingo that are in Pennsylvania, too. So we've been negotiating licenses with the operators that operate the hydropower plants at those dams that are responsible for coming up with solutions to pass shad around those dams that we haven't been able to uh, come up with yet. Um, we uh, back in 1980, we started on um, uh, creating um, uh, requirements for putting in fish passage around all four dams. Uh, those have been installed, but uh, they haven't been very effective in passing shad. So this new agreement is kind of like back to the future. It's uh, an agreement that really uh, goes back to the uh, trap, tra- uh, transfer, and, and, and truck shad around the dams to more effectively uh, get them around four barriers on the river since we can't do it with traditional passageways. Now, you were talking, and Josh, I want to bring you in to talk about uh, the history of this and uh, the fish itself in, in just a moment, but uh, you mentioned going back to 1980. At Conowingo, there was a fish lift uh, built in the other dams. We're looking at four now? Yes. Okay. Four dams had their own facilities or their own uh, ways of trying to uh, get the, the, the shad up upstream. Why didn't that fish lift? First of all, let me ask how a fish lift works, and why didn't it work as well as what you would like? Well, it's it's a mixture of science, engineering, and art, uh, and, and, and luck. And um, it's um, there's, there's a number of factors that um, you have to look at to be able to attract fish to a point at the base of a dam so that they actively swim into a structure, whether it's a fish lift, um, like an elevator lift, or, or a, a, um, a fish way where they swim up themselves through different chambers to get up upstream of, of the dam. And it has to be positioned right. The hydraulics of the river flows have to be right to be able to attract the fish there. The fish have to want to go there themselves. You can't make them go there. 
And, uh, yeah, they don't listen very well. No, they don't. No. Uh, although you can use acoustic sound to, to attract them or, or, re- or repel them <laughs> from different things. But we really haven't figured out the right formula to get those shad attracted to that part of the river so that we can effectively move them around the dams and move them upstream so they can get to their spawning grounds. Mm-hmm. All right, Josh, I'm going to bring you in now. Sure. Uh, 1839, the first uh, dam was built between Columbia and Wrightsville, and uh, then the others followed. Before the dams, what were the migrating patterns of the shad? Um, Typically, this time of the year, they'd be um, making their migration up through the the entire Susquehanna drainage um, and pushing as far up into New York State um, on the north branch of the Susquehanna. Um, They're a habitat generalist. Um, so they're, they're looking for um, not very specific conditions to spawn. They don't invest energy or time in, in building reds like smallmouth or other fish. Uh, they're a broadcast spawner. So water conditions are right, temperatures are right, um, and um, you know, they, the, the flow is good. They, they will spawn, and they'll, they'll keep making their way upriver until they're, until they're done spawning for the season. I, I'm a little bit surprised you say as far as New York. I, I kind of was under the impression, because we were talking about the four dams here in the southern part of Pennsylvania, that they only went as far as like the Juniata River or, you know, the middle Susquehanna River. No, um, there were, um, historically, there were fisheries, active fisheries up, up north of Berwick, um, that uh, would indicate that there was some kind of commercial value in the numbers that were coming up uh, that far north. Uh, we do have historical accounts of shad making their way up up into New York State, um, although the abundance wouldn't be as great. A majority of the fish would, would stay you know, lower in the drainage. Okay, now I'm going to take the part, and, and don't let our audience think that this is my opinion. I'm just putting out there what some people might uh, push back with. Uh, things change. And sure. those dams were put there for a reason, uh, for the benefit of, 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 of human beings. Um, you know, the ecology changes, the environment changes. Um, so what is the big deal if shad, this one, and of course there are others too, but uh, this one species of fish can't make its way up the Susquehanna River and spawn where it used to 200 years ago? Well, Shad uh, has a iconic place in American history, Scott. That's right. You were going to bring this story in because of our first part of the program. George Washington is Shad. So, John, you got to talk about that. Yeah, so I just want to touch on that, about why Shad is important, not only to Pennsylvania, but the entire country. Back in uh, 1777, 1778, Washington was uh, at Valley Forge, and he had a tough time feeding his troops and surviving the winter. Uh, he couldn't clothe them. He couldn't feed them. Uh, and... and uh, in, a, in, a, in an earlier life, Washington was actually a commercial shad fisherman. Really? I didn't know that. And he had that experience. He had a wide range of experiences, but he actually commercially fished for American shad when he was younger. So he had that expertise, and he recognized the, the, that the shad would be moving up the Delaware and into the Schuylkill uh, in the spring of the year, and they were, they were uh, out, and they, they needed protein. And, and he had actually written letters asking uh, a variety of people for, for various kinds of protein. So they took advantage of that shad uh, migration into the Schuylkill in the spring, and really it allowed him to feed his troops to survive the latter part of that winter. 
Um, so it was an important food source for Washington and his troops. And it was really uh, memorialized in a book uh, called The Founding Fish by John McPhee, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author from Philadelphia. So if your reader or, uh, listeners have any interest in the history of American shad in American history, uh, they should read that book. Are there still shad in the school kill? There are. Um, in fact, um, we have a couple of small dams on the Schuylkill that we're working on uh, trying to uh, get fish by. But the, uh, the Delaware is one of the few free-flowing rivers that's uh, unimpeded uh, in, in the entire, on the entire eastern seaboard. So as a result, we have a strong shad migration on the Delaware. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, let me get back to that question. Okay, it has historic, shad have historic significance in Pennsylvania. It did feed, as I said in the introduction, million, millions of people. But conditions have changed. Why is it important to bring that, allow that, that species of fish to continue to migrate up the Susquehanna River and spawn? Well, our forefathers made that a responsibility of the Fish and Boat Commission when they created us. So I think it's it's really our number one objective and priority is to try to get them restored to the river. And I do believe that we've got the scientific knowledge, we've got the engineering skills and, and uh, to be able to do that. Uh, the question is, we need to have both the political will and the, and the, and the funding to be able to do it the right way. Uh, it's in, it, it continues to be important. I'd love to see uh, anglers be able to catch American shad in Harrisburg or in Williamsport or uh, in Berwick like they used to be able to do. Obviously, we probably wouldn't restore commercial fishery. A lot of these fish get commercially overharvested in the ocean, which is why a lot of them aren't returning to the base of the Conowingo. So we have a difficult time. We've got multiple problems at play at the same time. We've got blockages that don't allow the fish to come upriver, and at the same time, we've got commercial fishermen overharvesting them out in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. During this portion of the program, we're talking with uh, John Arway, who's executive director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission, and also joining us is uh, Josh Trinajeski, who's a biologist with the Fish and Boat Commission. He's in charge of shad restoration efforts. Uh, we have a, a couple other topics we'll be uh, touching on as well here a little bit later in the program, but if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org, or you can go to WITF's Facebook page and leave a question or comment as well. one 800 729-7532. Josh, let's talk about the current population of shad. Kind of give me an idea of what it used to be before the dams existed, and what are we looking at now? Well, before the dams existed, I think one of my favorite uh, phrases uh, that I've read is um, in referring to how abundant they were was uh, the shad and river herring were fantastically abundant in the Susquehanna. Um you know, there's there's um, descriptions of hundreds or if not thousands of shad being taken in a single seine. Um, you know, being able to walk across the backs of the shad. Now, I'm sure there's some fishermen um, telling tales. Maybe, perhaps. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, they were very prolific. I mean, their strength their strength is in numbers. Uh, they are schooling fish. Um, the females have uh, a very large uh, ability or they have a lot of eggs they can have upwards of 750,000 eggs um, so they're very fecund as we say they have a very high productivity they can um, well where we're at now uh, we see the passage numbers at Conowingo each year and the other you know, the, the, the other successive dams on the river 
Um, Maryland DNR does a tail race population estimate every year below Conowingo Dam. Um, that population estimate's been right around, oh, I think it's uh, 120,000, 180,000. It's been it's low, much lower than what it historically has had been, but it seems to be fairly stable. Yeah, that uh, that you definitely aren't walking on the backs of the shad with uh, that population. We have a no. phone call from Roger in Seven Valleys. Roger, you're on the air. Thank you very much. I'm wondering what is the survival rate of the shad when they return downriver, uh, when they have to go through the turbines and that sort of thing. That is a fantastic question. Thank you very much, and one that I anticipated as well, because I, I wondered, uh, you know, it's not just getting up the river, but once uh, spawning has occurred. They head back out to the ocean, so uh, they have to get back through those those dams. Josh, what about that? What is the survival rate? Well, um, they're, uh, they're, through relicensing efforts that, um, at the dams, there's been a series of studies that have been done. Um, and basically, the fish have two options to get through or over a dam. One is to be spilled over, over the dam or... The other option is through the turbines. Um, each dam is different. Each dam has a different series of turbines and how they're configured. But roughly, I think it's like between 70 and maybe 80 percent, maybe as high as 90 percent, depending on the facility, uh, survival. So there still are up to 20 percent that uh, don't survive getting back downstream. Correct. Okay. All right. So, you know, one thing, John, I did want to ask you. We've had you on the program many times talking about the health of the Susquehanna River. What about that? I mean, uh, we know that uh, you've asked that uh, the, the Susquehanna be designated as uh, an endangered uh, waterway. What about the, the, the environmental, you know, the, the health of the river, the water itself, and shad? Well, shad aren't a resident species. They don't live in a river all the time. Right, they right, just migrate right. back uh, every couple of years to try to spawn in the river. Um, those eggs hatch. They out-migrate uh, through the dams or over the dams out to the Chesapeake Bay. And then eventually those fish grow up and go out to the ocean, grow, grow up to adult fish, and then come back and return on that journey. And try but, to return but if on they're still fish. swimming in bad water... Uh, it, it it is, but um, the the problem we have with the Susquehanna River uh, smallmouth and and the water quality is that they're exposed to it all the time, and it's a small window of time when those conditions occur that stress those young bass and 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 it causes them to get bacterial infections, lesions, and then die. Uh, those same kind of conditions don't happen with the shad. Okay. Um, so the shad are even though they're they're not as good of an indicator species, the kinds of things we're seeing going on the landscape in the Susquehanna as a smallmouth are. Okay. Josh, let me turn back to you for just a moment. You mentioned uh, uh, river herring. What's a river herring? I know for those who don't know, the shad is uh, in the herring family. What is a river herring? And I also understand that uh, there are agreements out there for uh, the dams to make sure that American eel make their way through too as well. Explain the differences. All right. Well, river herring, um, they're... It's two species grouped together, blueback herring and alewife. Um, just, it's very difficult to tell them apart uh, on the outside or on the surface, but they are anadromous like the shad, um, making their spawning runs into freshwater um, rivers in the spring of the year, usually a little ahead of the shad. Um, and they also, they return, you know, 
to, to spawn in multiple years as well. Um, they too were once uh, once very abundant, um, and with improvements that are planned at these at the the dam facilities, you know, early on our, our target was American shad. Now the target has become any migratory fish. Um, so we're not we want to make sure that there's there's conditions that not only American shad but hickory shad. Um, River herring are able to to use to to pass these dams or pass these facilities. Okay. Um, I'd ask about the eel. The eel, yes. The eel is uh the eel is an interesting fish. Um, yeah, it's ugly. It's <laughs> it's. <laughs> I won't say it's ugly. All right, okay. You're in the fish and boat commission. You can't say <laughs> that the fish is ugly. Okay. Not to another I, eel, Scott. Oh yes, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that's right. I'll agree that they're slimy. Okay, there um, we go. All right. Um, their life history is, is I guess you could say, opposite of what a shad's life history is, in that uh, shad are anadromous, but eels are catadromous. And what that refers to is they spend a majority of their life in freshwater, um, freshwater ecosystems, and once they're sexually mature, they, they migrate to the ocean to spawn. Mm. Um, so... We have, they come back as juveniles, and they swim upriver as juveniles from the ocean, and each of these facilities, each of these hydro dams will eventually be responsible for providing passage for those eels coming back into the freshwater system. Josh, one final question for you. So this agreement between the federal government and Exelon Generation, it involves... Um, you know, trucking the, uh, the the shad upstream in the Susquehanna and releasing them. Anything else? I mean, hasn't that been tried before with mixed success? It was tried before, um, and um, it, it went to the wayside because uh, the utility companies agreed to build uh, the, the fish passage and pay for research initiatives in the river and contribute towards... Um, make contributions to operate the, the hatchery that we operate for shad. Um, once that trap and transport went away, um, there there was very little natural reproduction occurring above York Haven Dam because we weren't getting as many fish upriver of all four of the dams. Um, but we're encouraged because we, we know it, it did work. Um, getting adults into the river, allowing them to spawn naturally, um, they know what they're doing, and they do it best, so we might as well let them do it. And it, it, I, I see it as a good way to jumpstart this process, jumpstart the restoration, because our population numbers are so low mm-hmm. in okay. the Susquehanna. I want to move on to another topic, uh, John Orway. Um, you're looking for an increase in fishing licenses. There hasn't been, uh, and I'm talking about pr- the price of a fishing license, there hasn't been an increase since 2005. Why, do you, uh, why are you looking for this increase? Well, you can imagine, Scott, if you went into a grocery store and the prices were fixed for 10 years, and then suddenly uh, in, in the 11th year you go in and the prices go up 30%. And that's the model that we've been on in terms of how we raise prices for fishing licenses over time. And every time we j- increase the prices uh, substantially to catch up with inflation costs that occur over the period of time that we don't raise fees, um, it, it drives down both license sales as well as participation. 
Every time we increase license fees over, since 1990, when we peaked out at 1.1 million, we lose 8 to 10% of our anglers from fishing. And we're not about deterring anglers from fishing. We're about promoting fishing and get, getting more people fishing and spending money in Pennsylvania. So we believe that we need to come up with a new business model for the agency. I call us a government business. And we're really working with the Smeal College of Business at Penn State to take a look at, even though we're not a for-profit business, we're going to take a look at our government business from a business perspective and put a business plan together. Real quick, quick question before we get into that business plan. Uh, does, does your income in the Fish Boat Commission come strictly from licenses? Uh, license sales, boat registration fees, and the federal excise tax okay. from the federal government, which is about a quarter of our budget, th- those are the three funding components of, of, of the agency. We don't get any tax revenues, general fund rev- revenues from, from the, from the uh, Commonwealth. All right. So now that bit new business model you're talking about, only the legislature is responsible for raising license fees. Uh, the Senate Game and Fisheries Committee has passed two pieces of legislation, Senate Bills 1166 and 1168, that would allow the commission to set your own fees for regulation. Why? Well, really, we have two bills in play. 1103, which Senator Brewster introduced, which sets a structure for the price increase, which is what we've always done. The other bill is 1168. It was an outcome of a discussion we had with Senators Eichelberger and Wozniak at a legislative luncheon we had in Bedford. And they said, why don't we just give you the authority to set your own prices? You don't, you don't want to uh, impact negatively impact license sales. So you're going to try to do everything you can to maximize sales, but at the same time, minimize uh, the impact of, of, of price increases. And we said that would be a great, great idea. Uh, they, um, and along with 20 other senators, we have 22 senators on Senate Bill 1168, uh, constructed a bill that would give us the authority to set our own fees. It's gone through the Senate Game and Fish Committee. Uh, we're anxious to see it move through the Appropriations Committee and then to the full floor of the Senate. We've got broad support for that authority. Uh, just give us a chance to use the business model that we can build uh, to change the way uh, we encourage people to fish in Pennsylvania. Now, you say there is broad support, and I would agree with that from what I see. But there also are those who say that I don't I just don't like the idea of the agency setting their own rates. How will that be monitored? What is to keep the agency from raising the rates to the point where, you know, people can't afford it, they're bringing in money they don't need, or, you know, how do you respond to those questions? Well, Le- Legislative Budget and Finance Committee, which is a independent committee of the legislature, Senate and House, in our triennial audit last uh, two years ago, found that we were the most efficient agency, fish and wildlife agency in the country in the way we spend angler and boater dollars. So we take pride in that. We don't, um, uh, we take pride in the way we manage our funds and the anglers and boaters funds. Um, we also have there's a three year sunset provision to this legislation, so it would it, uh, the legislature would look at renewing it or not based on our performance over the next three years. And secondly, we've got that LBFC audit oversight as well as I report every year in an annual report both to the House and Senate about what our progress is. So there's plenty of oversight to make sure that we don't abuse that authority. We only have about thirty seconds left, uh, John. Where's that legislation stand? Uh, right now, it's been through the House Game and Fisheries Committee. It's ready to go to the Senate Appropriations Committee. We got a little tweak in an amendment to take care of some uh, some concerns of a couple of senators. We're confident we're going to get it through the appropriations, get it to the floor of the House and Senate, and then get it over to the Game and Fish Committee in the House side and into the floor of the House, uh, hopefully sometime before June, uh, for a vote. John Harway is the Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. Josh Trinajeski is a biologist with the Fish and Boat Commission. I want to thank both of you for being with us today. Thanks, Scott.
Thank you, Scott. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, I mentioned earlier, Brent Glass, author of the new book, 50 Great American Places. That's coming up on Friday, Smart Talk. <laughs> 